Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Do different types of funds to hopefully mitigate the timelines, but also provide more risk-adjusted returns for a particular piece of the project. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I am your host, Joe Cornwell, and today I am joined by Sam Bates, Today's episode is brought to you by BAM Capital, a trusted multifamily syndicator that has never missed a preferred payment and never lost an LP's investment. To learn more about investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com or click the link in the show notes. Sam is the owner of Bates Capital Group. They're based in Dallas, Texas. They are syndicating joint venture, multifamily, single family land and retail development firm. They also buy and hold as well. Sam has been on the show. It's been a few years. So Sam, welcome back and thank you for joining us today. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me, Joe. I enjoyed the first time being on your show and I've loved listening to Best Ever over the years. So excited to be back with you and your audience. Well, thank you and welcome back. And I know you said it's been a couple of years since you've been on the show. So why don't you walk us through anything that may have changed in your business and what you're focused on today? I don't remember exactly when I was on, but really since 21, we haven't done any acquisitions. We knew the market was changing. We didn't expect the rates to rise like it has, but we kind of held pat and we focused more on land development and developing multifamily. Then also we're starting to do some ground up retail medical office development. So basically shifting, I've always been in development, but shifting the core focus maybe more to development than acquisition. But I think in 24, now that hopefully rates are coming back down and pricing from a acquisition standpoint becomes more realistic, we'll look back at acquisition mode. Yeah. Development is one of those things that I'm heavily interested in as well. And I know you said you're doing some pretty sizable developments, several hundred units. That's a little bit above my pay grade at this point, but the idea of building and making the deals that you can't find is a motivating concept for me. And I have a construction background as well, where I have some of those resources to do some new development and build outs. 
But what made you want to shift into the development versus buying existing inventory? Well, take a step back. Really the first syndications I ever did were in development because we've tried to buy acquisitions for a couple of years. And at that time, brokers and possibly even landlords didn't believe we would close. We were in our 20s or early 30s. So kind of by <laughs> hitting our head against the wall for a couple of years, we moved into development. And then in the late teens, it seemed like acquisitions made the most sense. It was quicker than development process. And then once pricing got significantly higher from an acquisition standpoint, we circled back into development. I feel like it's the true value add where you're going in and we buy the land and are able to get it rezoned. So we add a lot of value there. And then just from the construction standpoint, we're building it, I believe, cheaper than most people can because we source stuff from Asia and other countries and our labor force is luckily had been in place for years. So we have repeat laborers coming back and it's just allowed us to take advantage of development in this time, even though interest rates have not been the best, even for construction developments. So when you look at the landscape of doing new development and you said you're based in Dallas, so are you doing all of this in Texas? Or are you building in other markets? Yeah, development is all in Texas and primarily DFW. We've done one development outside of DFW, but the rest has been mainly west of Fort Worth and now some of the retail and medical. That's more in the fluent areas north of Dallas, but the single family homes and multifamily is pretty much west of Fort Worth. Okay, and why do you like Texas? I'm from Texas. <laughs> I think it's a great story from population base. Texas is very business friendly, so people are moving here and the demand is needed. Everybody wants to live in a nice home or apartment and it's a core need. So people are going to spend money on that need. Makes sense. Give me an example development you're doing or have done and tell me a little bit about what it looks like. So what are the makeups of these units? What are the level of finish, square footage, rent targets, all of that stuff? From a finish out standpoint, they're all very similar. We'll do faux wood flooring, stainless steel or granite countertops. Pretty much a class A. We aren't going to be like the AAA that you might expect in uptown Dallas or a urban city across the country. But for the secondary and tertiary markets that we build, we're bringing in really nice product and we typically build each unit a little bit larger than maybe a traditional apartment unit like our one bedrooms are typically eight to nine hundred square feet two bedrooms kind of varies 11 to 13 1400 square feet and then we'll even have the three bedrooms larger than that and it just gives people more space i think in Texas, a lot of people are accustomed to space and we can capitalize on that if we can provide a nice quality finish out at an affordable price. So what size communities are you making with these properties? We've done kind of all over the board as well. The first one was a 60 unit apartment. It was really mixed uses, 10,000 square feet of retail space and 60 unit apartment. 
and the largest apartment we've done is 257 units right now that average is probably 100 130 units or so so what is your psychology behind that what do you like and why like i mentioned we're building in the secondary and tertiary markets so everywhere we look we do our own research then get independent third-party reports and we don't want to flood the market but we'll go after what the market study shows the market can absorb and also from just a capital standpoint now building <laughs> two three four hundred unit apartments is a significant overtaking or significantly more than just a hundred units so we raised a fund for two of the apartment builds we're doing right now we raise roughly 12 to 13 million but if we're going to be building a three to four hundred unit property it'd be double or even more than that mm, interesting okay talk to me a little bit about the actual building process so from the time you find a lot when are you breaking ground and what's your eta on actually putting out leasable units it depends we always buy raw land so we have to go through the zoning process so each city or ETJ or whatever type of jurisdiction we're working with. They're definitely one of the factors in how quickly we can get through development. But like one, we were able to go through the zoning process. It took about 16 to 18 months for the actual development of the property. But it took us on the long side, close to four years to buy the land and open. And that was during COVID. So there's a lot of supply chain issues and some things out of our control, but a long process of it was getting through the city, which took, I think about two years or a little bit more than that. Okay. So it sounds like best case scenario, you're looking at 24 months from close to lease out and could be, as you mentioned, up to 48 months. So it's a big outlay and a long time horizon on that. So break down some numbers for me, if you will. Give me an example property. What are you building per unit, per door? And what are the rents on average? If you have a deal in mind, you can kind of break down for us. I'll go with the one that took us four years to develop. We were building it roughly for 120 a unit. We bought the land back in 2017 or 18. So it was completely different pricing than it would be now. And that was a big part of it, but we're able to build nice size units for about 120 a door, give or take 5,000 plus or minus. And that's land development costs as well, not just construction costs. But yeah, that's soft costs, hard costs, all in. And our rents are right around 1,600 on average. But right now, some of the apartments we're constructing, we're more at the 140 and 160 a door for all in cost. And the market rent will be a little bit higher, but it won't have that larger discrepancy that the previous one did. Yeah. So for anyone who uses rent ratio metrics, you were close to 1.5 previously, and now closer to that 1% rent ratio sounds like for your all-in cost. But for class A, brand new construction, even at 7, 8% rates, that's probably not a bad deal. So talk to me a little bit about the actual process. And I know you said every city is a little bit different, but give me some examples on some of the challenges that you deal with. And I guess one of my primary questions, and I'm selfishly asking most of this because as I mentioned, this is definitely a path that I'm on and want to continue down doing new development. But one of my concerns is you have all this capital risk when you go out to buy these lots. 
and it sounds like you're buying big parcels of land to do the size and scope you're doing. So at what point in that process do you actually even know if this project has legs? Really from the get-go, we put in the contract where either we can back out if it doesn't get zoned, which way we think it can, or if it won't get zoned for, say, multifamily, we can use it and do something else. If we don't have an exit strategy or if we can't pivot to another type of development, we'll never buy the land just because we don't want to go in there, tie up our money, potentially our investor money, and the deal falls flat. So we'll start talking to the city and some landowners are a lot more amenable for us to go through the process than others. So it depends on the landowner, but we've had some contracts basically with being able to get out of it for six months. In some contracts we've had to put hard money down every quarter or every few months until we get it rezoned. So again, it kind of depends on who you're dealing with, but we don't want to lock it up if we're putting any type of money down, if we know there isn't some type of plan where we can develop and make a return on the investment. What percentage of confidence do you have when you put a deal under contract that it's going to be developable the way you want and you're able to get it rezoned? Is that having relationships with these individual jurisdictions before you even go down that path? Or is this all stuff you kind of fire the name, so to speak? I would say we have probably about 90% or higher certainty that it's going to get zoned the way we want it. I will say all the developments I've done, I've had a partner in construction and he's been in the business for roughly 30 years. So we have a good idea of what to expect with all the jurisdictions that we're working in, but there's always going to be unforeseen situations that pop up. Like one of our lot developments, we had to run utilities through five or six landowners properties. One of them forced us to pay him $240,000 just to run the utilities through. So there's always going to be situations you have to navigate more so than just going and buying a pre-existing building. Well, let me ask you this, and I guess disclose whatever you're able to, but especially when you get in these larger development game, what and how often are there big political involvements? Palms that have to be greased, so to speak. I'm not saying necessarily illegally, but what do you deal with in that world? I want to say we've never <laughs> do anything illegally, <laughs> but there's always some type of political rhetoric going back and forth and you have to work with the politicians and you go to the zoning meetings and you talk to people and we've hired attorneys and engineers and all the professionals that do this on a daily basis to speak on our behalf. And also even once it's passed, we had the deal that took us about four years to build in the city, a pipeline exploded and evidently for six months, all the engineers of that city worked on the pipeline and they didn't push anything else through. So we were just kind of waiting on our development to be approved, to be pushed through. So there is <laughs> give and take with cities. One of the developments we're doing right now, pretty much the entire city council has been replaced through the process and we've basically had to start over and going through that process again. So you never know exactly what you're going to get, but all the land we buy, we're fairly confident that we're going to get the end product completed. The time horizon will change a little bit and the budgets could change. 
I have a couple of follow-up questions on that, and then I do have some other questions on the development still, but segueing into some of the challenges, talk to me about, one, how do you deliver the expectations with your investors? Because obviously, listening to this and knowing some of this on a lower level, you're talking about, as you mentioned, potentially 48 eight months till you get a return. How does that go with your limited partners or investors or joint ventures? And what is that conversation like? It's evolved over the years. Definitely early on, it was tough. The deal that took 48 months or however long to complete, we raised the capital initially at the first, and we went through that process. An issue that popped up was with the city, they promised us a road and it was only going to be six feet, but then they backed out. We had to do it. That was an extra almost 500,000 to the budget. Our bank didn't lend on it. so. Unfortunately, we had to get creative and we put in a lot of the money and then the investors put in the rest. So all the investors we have, we have really good relationships with and most of them have invested with us for multiple deals so they understand it. But as we matured, if you want to say through investing, we've created different funds or different points of when the investors can come in because we know some people don't want that development risk or they don't want the entitlement risk. So we create funds that will raise the money just for buying land and zoning it. Then when we zone it, we'll flip it over to another entity and investors, they can roll into the new entity or if they don't want to participate in the development, then we'll have other people come in. So there's definitely been trial and error and we've had to learn how to delicately talk to the investors and some of them are great. Some of them are fine. Some of them have been frustrated with the time period and the projection periods. And that's why we've decided to do different types of funds to hopefully mitigate the timelines, but also provide more risk adjusted returns for a particular piece of the project. We'll get back to the show with a first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with security laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in security offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. And this offer is not available to Florida residents. When you are dealing with some of these challenges like COVID, for example, and I'm sure I'm going to hear some of the similar things that I went through having done some major rehabs during COVID, but walk me through a couple of those major issues you were dealing with during that time frame. COVID seems so far from now, but from a construction standpoint, it was definitely the supply side and i remember we waited five months to get windows and that was nerve-wracking for us the labor shortage was very real during covid some of our apartments we couldn't even keep a maintenance guy 
<laughs> which is unbelievable. And I think the biggest issue, it was resolved with the government, but initially during COVID, our delinquency skyrocketed in some of the properties with people that were more the blue collar or service industry people. But over time, we were able to collect on the rents. And honestly, now our collections during COVID were stronger than what they are at this point in time. I feel like the economy's weakened a little bit, and as inflation skyrocketed, a lot of residents now are having a hard time to pay when, during COVID, we had to wait a few months, but we were able to get rent either from the resident or rent relief from the different agencies. Yeah, I'm based in Cincinnati, and our portfolio has seen the same thing. I'm starting to see some people with employment issues and more delinquencies and late payments and things like that. And yeah, during COVID, we were actually not affected at all. All of our tenants paid on time and interesting how things have changed with the economy weakening a little bit. So I think you mentioned that you had a partner who does the project management, general contracting, things like that. What percentage of this are you doing with in-house labor and what percentage are you subbing out? We have subs throughout the entire company. For the single family homes, it's all in-house. We have the contractors and subs that just do it all. For the multifamily, we usually hire a general contractor. We'll bring in some subs, but yeah, the majority of it is outside labor. We have superintendents to oversee it, but it's usually third party. Okay. And are these larger construction companies that typically run these big type of developments, meaning that you guys are managing that aspect? managing the company that's actually generally contracting it, but then the general contractors actually handle the day-to-day construction aspect. Yeah. On the developments we have now, it's larger GCs and we're just more so overseeing it. And previous, my partner, he's been a GC and he was using a lot of his labor, but we've just moved away from that model. We think hiring an actual GC will be able to help us scale quicker and also maybe eliminate some of the risk that we've had in the past. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. My last question on the development side, we can move on, but number wise, you can go back to that example. It was a question I missed. You're building these for, let's say in today's example, you're all in at 140. What is then the exit strategy? Are you holding these? Are you selling these? And if so, what are you projecting your exits to be at per unit? Again, it depends. But for the two that we're building right now, our plan is to get them up and stabilized in refi and hold for hopefully five, 10 years. Exit, when we underwrote them, cap rates were compressed compared to what they probably are now. So I don't know exactly what price per door we're looking at, but at least when we were underwriting them, we were shooting for 220 a door. I don't know if we'll hit that, but if we can even refi at 180, 190, that's going to be a home run. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Now my really last question on this is uh, what sort of amenities are you putting in these communities on these hundred plus unit developments? It's the amenities that everybody expects. Swimming pool, fitness center, game room. One of the properties we have a room that has pool tables and clubhouse. Okay. We have dog parks. We've talked about putting in walking trails around. One of the properties we're building right now is a student housing community. So we have study areas. I never thought I'd do this, but we have a gaming area for students because that's what they expected. 
It just kind of depends on the tenant base, but we're adding pretty much anything that's fresh and new we try to put into the communities. Well, that is awesome, man. I really appreciate all of your insight on the development side. I know you mentioned in the opening that you also, particularly in your role with your business, that you head up operations as well. Tell me a little bit about your actual company structure, what it's set up like from a high level, and then tell me about your role within the operations. The majority of the developments or projects I've done, it's me and two partners. One's a construction guy who handles that. One helps with investor relations and brings in good majority of the capital. And then I also do investor relations, raise capital, and then oversee asset management or operations. And we also have 50-ish employees. So I'll head up some of the groups within the company. But on a day-to-day basis, definitely working with the third-party property managers. We don't do any in-house property management, but working with the third-party property managers to make sure the assets are running smoothly and operate as well as they possibly can. Interesting. And you mentioned that at one point you were holding over a thousand units. I think you said now you're hovering between five and 600 plus obviously all the things in development. What is your mindset behind that as far as what you're selling and why over the last few years? Really, luckily we had built quite a few properties in the late teens and we felt like in 2021 and 22 is time to get rid of them. For the time period, a lot of the investors were wanting to recycle their capital into other deals. Some of the deals we bought were smaller. Some of them were in different locations that we weren't going to buy another asset in. And they did great for us, but we wanted to, I won't say consolidate what we own, but just get into the markets that we think are going to be great long-term. Because a lot of them we were buying in smaller secondary tertiary cities in Texas. And with the market being hot the way it was, it was hard to argue when we were buying them at six, seven, eight caps and we could sell them for four caps. So that was part of the thinking. And now the assets we have, we're just trying to streamline operations and some we're looking into either refinancing or if we should hold for three, five, 10 years and just seeing with the Fed announcing they plan to drop rates three times next year, we'll see what pricing the market is in and that might dictate if if we hold or sell. So as far as business plan, I know the economy and the data is probably going to tell all of us a lot of things, but what would you like to do in 24 and beyond as a business? At this point, we want to finish the developments we've done. We think we can open them all up next year and we'll start leasing them. I don't think any of them will probably be leased up till 25. So that's going to be a focus. I'm going to start dipping my toe back into acquisitions and seeing if pricing makes sense. I would love to acquire two or three deals next year, but I've always come from a cautious standpoint maybe, and I'd much rather buy the right deal than just buy a deal to get under the belt per se. And I think our investors appreciate that. And with it being election year, I think the economy is going to get better than it was this year, but I still don't know exactly a lot of places rental rates are dropping and we'll just see how that plays out but ideally i'd love to buy a few assets next year and with that in mind are you planning for 
Rates to continue dropping. I know you mentioned what the Fed's indicated. Is that what you're underwriting, that there could be opportunities on the buy side? I haven't underwritten anything since 21, but yeah, if we do start looking at deals and underwriting again, I do expect the rates to drop a little bit. When the Fed came out and announced it, the tenure plummeted, which was good. It got under four for the first time in a while. So I think it will continue to drop. Now the spread in the rates that the lenders put on, I don't know how much that's going to change. So we'll have to see. And I change the underwriting models all the time, given market conditions. But I do think they're going to drop. I just don't know by how many basis points. And I never really underwrote cap rate compression. I just won't do that going forward. So I'll have cap rate staying the same or expanding just to give a safeguard. If it does expand and then if it compresses, it's just gravy. Yeah, that's a great strategy. So when you raise money with these investors, is this typically a lot of investors doing smaller percentage contributions or do you have a small pool that's doing larger contributions? Where are you meeting with these people? I'm assuming a lot of these are obviously not repeats since you've had such a long track record. But when you first started, tell me a little bit about how were you finding these investors for your limited partnerships? Yeah, the first deal we did, it was all really friends and business relationships. The raise was only $2.2 million, so it was small, but it was by far the hardest raise we've ever had. And luckily, that one did really well, and it helped us build a track record. And our investor base is pretty close-knit and tight. On most of the projects, we'll have 20 to 30, maybe 40 at the high end. And we've switched from 506B to 506C, so most of them will invest 100 plus, some a little bit less, some significantly more. It just kind of depends on their situation and even timing of the deal. One of our investors will invest over seven figures sometimes, and sometimes they'll invest 100,000. Okay. And how are you meeting them today? After COVID, I went to 20 conferences in 12 months or so, but we've had a really good built-in network and a lot of them, I was in business consulting and was in energy and business for a little over a decade. One of my partners, he's been in business for 15, 20 years at this point. So we just have pretty deep relationships with high income earners and highly educated professionals that want to invest in real estate to diversify their holdings and depreciation, I think is a big key to it just to reduce their tax burden. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay. You ready to switch to the best ever lighting round? Sure. All right. Give me your best ever book recommendation. I would say the success principles by Jack Canfield thought is phenomenal and still use the principles today. Best ever way you like to give back through different charities that I've been involved in that I've went on mission trips with or to the church. And give me a mistake made in an investment deal and the lesson you learned from it. There's a lot of them. Partnering with the right people is the best way to say it. And where can people learn more about what you guys are doing and connect with you? You can reach out to me at batescapitalgroup.com. That's the easiest way to connect with me and happy to jump on a call or email, whatever you prefer communication wise. 
Well, I really appreciate your time. I know I learned a lot. I asked a lot of selfish questions that I hope our audience will get as much value from as I did. We'll be sure to link to your previous episodes if people want to hear more about your backstory. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe, for having me on. Listeners, if you got value from today's episode, please leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following us and Sam on social media, and I hope you all have the best every day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.